Welcome to the Farcast, coming to you every week with insiders and experts to give you insight into the changing economic world. And now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. It is June the 24th, 2020. I am in Washington, D.C. for the first time in three months, back here for a little bit, getting ready uh, to relocate and move uh, my camp head locations, camp locations, my uh, to Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Um, I've been seeing a lot of folks from Far Miller in Washington. I came back to uh, actually see everybody who works here. A few have been coming into the office, and otherwise, I've been getting in my car and going to driveways and and an occasional living room and deck and taking walks around the block, socially distanced just very important to, to be able to talk to the people who take care of our clients. Our number one job and focus at Farm Miller in Washington is taking care of the clients. And my first responsibility then becomes taking care of the people who take care of our clients. Um, everybody's doing well. I'm happy to report. Remember that at Farm Miller in Washington at the Farcast, we believe that old fashioned research, uh, dogged discipline, dispassionate discipline and patience are the keys to successful investing, especially that emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. If you're feeling ebullient, if you're feeling scared, don't make investment decisions based on how you feel. Be like the Federal Reserve. Be data dependent. Think about your long-term plans and goals uh, and avoid the emotion. It will lead you to the wrong conclusion, ladies and gentlemen. We have a fabulous forecast coming up. Uh, I'm going to talk, of course, about markets this morning. We cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world, Farcast. We're going to go then to Dan Mahaffey, and then my friend Robert Frick from Navy Federal Credit Union, chief economist there, with 8 million members. Looking forward to hearing what Bob is telling us about all of those 8 million members, their buying habits and borrowing habits. We're going to learn a lot this morning about what's going on in the more broad real economy in the United States. Again, thank you for joining us. I'm happy to be back in Washington. Uh, it's been a turbulent few months as we come here to the end of the second quarter and first half of 2020. I am not sorry to leave this one in the rearview mirror, Harry Jennings, at <laughs> all. Uh, this, is, this is, as years go, you can keep this one. Um, all right. Uh, here's a number of things on my mind. Markets still trading at all-time highs. The economy uh, is beginning to show some uh, positive signs. We're coming off a very low level. So if you, uh, let's say, if you have a 90% correction, if you lose 90% of your money and you go from $100 uh, uh, down to $10 and you've lost 10%, 90% of your money, and then you make $5, you go from 10 to 5, you've just had a 50% increase. It's going to sound great. These percentage numbers are going to sound great as the economy recovers. But where we are in terms of real numbers is still going to be something of a dog's breakfast. So uh, good news, not great news. And yet a lot of investors seem to be really convinced of a fabulous outcome. It's the only explanation for stock prices trading near their all-time highs uh, amidst such horrible economic data have another uh, couple of observations about what I'm seeing in markets. So 
I'm being cautious. And I've been in this chair before, ladies and gentlemen, over the decades that I have done this, when everybody in the market is saying, shut up, Far. Everything's great. Shut up, Far. You don't get it. Things aren't as bad as you think. Why do you have to be such a wet blanket? Why can't you just get on to the party? Uh, start smiling and have another drink. Um, it's never worked out well for me. And as I've mentioned on other forecasts, I've always been more comfortable as being the DD, the designated driver. You go ahead and have that other drink. The, the other uh, analogy that I have used here at Far Miller in Washington is, you know, uh, I feel like one of those old uh, buffaloes as I watch the young antelope go down and take the first sips from the crocodile infested river. I'm going to watch for a little while. Everybody's telling me that water's just safe and there are no crocodiles there. Let's watch the kid go down and sip for a little while before I lead the rest of my clients down there. Uh, I, I, we'll see. That's, that's fine. But I'm going to watch from the sidelines a little bit. I'm going to stand back a bit. And that's what I do as an investor. I, I want to be circumspect. I want to be dispassionate. I want to be data dependent. And that young antelope down there uh, sticking his head very close to that water is going to give me the information I need to make my next decision. I need more information. As we look at what's going on from the Federal Reserve and the government uh, and the federal government, we have seen lots of monetary stimulus and more is being promised. We had a lot of monetary stimulus and help from the Federal Reserve and also from the federal government uh, from the years 2008, 2009 through 2020, as we've recovered from the Great Recession. Well, we're going to have the greater recession is where we are now if this doesn't turn into a depression, and I pray it doesn't. I don't think it will. To technically, I don't think it will, though I think it could be a prolonged, difficult economic period. Uh, uh, we, we saw uh, the economy recover, but you might, have rem you might remember both on the forecast, on TV, and in print, I said, listen, we have added trillions of dollars to this economy to generate just 2% of GDP growth. We had about 2.1%, 2.2% GDP growth over that 10-year period where we doubled the national debt. We went from $7 trillion, $14 trillion, got up to $20 trillion, uh, in U.S. debt, uh, all to generate about 2% in GDP growth. Those are a whole lot of bucks for a very little bang. And I think we've learned something from that. And this is something I want to discuss with Bob Frick, who's a behavioral economist. What I mentioned too on the forecast and in speeches around the country, as I explain the economy, I use the uh, example of a donut shop. Let's, ladies and gentlemen, join me in ownership of, of your donut shop and think that as we get there at 4.30 every morning, God help us all to start making donuts, we have three other people join us who work on a bunch of machines, and they make a bunch of donuts. And an economist will look at our donut shop and say, and say if I add another person, go from three to four people, I should have more donuts. Or if I add another machine for those three people to work on, I should have more donuts. If I add another person and another machine, I should have a lot more donuts. We in this country have provided a lot of cash, a lot of liquidity, cheap money. The cheap money, we have had a supply of money, and we have provided a supply-side solution 
supply side solution to the economic trials and tribulations which we endured through the great banking crisis of 08 and 09. And we're doing it again. What we learned, though, was that that abundance of cash did not create demand. The abundance of cash did not create demand. We didn't have a problem in our ability to make donuts. We had a problem in finding people to stand outside the door when we opened at 6 a.m. to buy our donuts. And if we couldn't find more people to buy the donuts, we really didn't need to make that many, many more, which is why we ended up with this 2% GDP growth. And I think I'm getting, this is a very important point that I'm going to make, and I, I think that I'm right about it. We'll find out over time if I am. But if you have an economy that is 70% driven by the consumer, and the consumer doesn't have any more capacity to buy, we don't have a supply problem, we have a demand problem. And I think we're finding that one of the limitations of monetary and fiscal stimulus is that it does not create demand. It creates supply. It lubricates the wheels. It allows the economy to stay on life support. It is that morphine drip that is able to keep things going and keep our patient alive. And then look, look, prior to you know, February, it looked like we were coming out of the last doldrums pretty well, no more given this pandemic and economic shutdown. But limitation, significant limitation of monetary and fiscal stimulus is that it does not generate demand. Now, the important part about that is if it doesn't generate demand, stay with me on this one. Here's the big point, okay? The big point. If it doesn't generate demand, it's not going to generate inflation. If it doesn't generate demand, it's not going to generate inflation. Now, that doesn't mean that I am a subscriber to modern monetary theory. I think it's utter crap, as a matter of fact. <laughs> you, you can't manipulate rates forever. I think it's just awful. It doesn't make any sense to me. But the only thing that all of this money can do is keep an economy going to get us to the point where we were probably in January is the real economy was indeed recovering. And we had three and a half percent unemployment. And that unemployment was going to lead to more Americans making more money and more having jobs that were going to be able to go out and spend their money at McDonald's and Walmart and Lowe's and Home Depot. That's what we need in the economy. That's what we were beginning to see. That's what we are without right now. You can't charge more for things right now. Uh, there's not the demand. And there are certainly people who are living on those checks from the government. And the CARES Act checks are sending $600 a week uh, more. In addition to unemployment through the CARES Act, that ends in July. What will people spend then? There you go, being a wet blanket again, Far. But I'm giving you some good news in there, too, in that I don't see uh, imminent inflation. I do think it has to happen sooner or later. So maybe I'm going to have the great temerity to disagree with Milton Friedman, who said that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. No, it's not. It's a demand-driven phenomenon. And I think that monetary, uh, the monetary side will uh, help get that organic growth going. But in the United States, 70% based on the consumer, there has to be demand to drive prices and economic growth.
Friedman might have been wrong, says Farr. God help me. I'm waiting for lightning to strike, Harry. All right, <laughs> here we go. We're going to talk to Dan Mahaffey about politics. Uh, we're going to talk with Bob Frick about what they're seeing at Navy Federal Credit. We're going to come back with Dan Mahaffey. Thanks so much for being with us again this week. We're going to be right back. Thank you for joining us on this week's Farcast. We'd like to invite you to follow Michael on Twitter and LinkedIn. On his social media feed, you'll find links to all of Michael's media appearances, articles he's been quoted in in such newspapers as the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post, and, of course, the Farcast. Additionally, Michael shares some of the articles we are reading at Farm Miller in Washington every morning that we feel have bearing on the investing landscape. That's Michael underscore K underscore Far on Twitter, and Michael Farr on LinkedIn. And now, back to Michael and the Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast, and now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I'm Michael Farr. Thanks so much for being with us. All right, uh, as we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world, it's time for sort of at least Washington and the world with our great friend Dan Mahaffey. Our senior political analyst on the Farcast is also uh, the director of policy at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. Uh, Dan's a Washington insider's insider with a view on Capitol Hill, a uh, also a student of history, a keen intellect who able to help us all understand what's going on and what the implications are going to be for the economy and the markets. His crystal ball has been pretty clear over the past few years. We hope it continues. Welcome back to the forecast, Dan. Thank you, Michael. Great as always to be talking with you. Well, we're glad you're here. Uh, Dan, now let's, uh, let's talk about what we're seeing right now. The president, we're, let's, talk, let's, let's do this, Dan. I'll give us a little mm -hmm. bit of an outline. Let's talk about uh, the president's rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, Biden's uh, looking a bit better in the polls. The president seems to be reverting to his old playbook on, uh, mm -hmm. uh, at least on immigration um, uh, and jobs. Uh, and he's out visiting the wall uh, that he wanted to build, reminding people of his campaign promises. So let's go first yeah. uh, uh, to the president's rally over the weekend in Tulsa. What did you make of it? Mm -hmm. Well, certainly there were plenty of headwinds about the concerns about the virus, about people attending. I think they broke one of the cardinal rules of politics, which is to under-promise and over-deliver uh, by talking about a, a million sign-ups and cl clearly questions about uh, how much demand there is for these rallies among his base and the concerns there, as well as the president seeming a, a little bit uh, deflated. The, it's not the same tone. He talked on and on about the uh, the ramp at West Point and his, focused on his health and fitness, I think, trying to draw a contrast with Biden, trying to take some of these protests and say that they, that's the entire uh, Democratic Party. They're all tearing down statues and vandalism, when, in fact, that's the a small, uh, violent subset of these protests. Uh, so there's there's all these factors that I think that that have them a little concerned about the enthusiasm, uh, as well as wanting to get the president out and get his energy back up, getting him outside of Washington. Uh, and I think he had a little bit of a better experience, although with a, a smaller audience in in Arizona yesterday at the uh, the mega church that he spoke at, which was uh, still packed shoulder to shoulder with largely maskless people. 
Um, so uh, masks have become a political issue, Dan? Well, masks have become a political issue, and that's just why I think one of the biggest biggest shames of this. And uh, as much as I was getting texts from uh, folks on the left gloating about Tulsa, I was getting folks uh, texts from folks on the right uh, concerned about Tulsa. And, and my thought the whole time was, you know, thank God there's fewer people who have the potential to get sick and, and pass it on to family members or tax nurses and doctors uh, who, are, who are overworked on the front lines. Yeah. Um, uh, the president also uh, has been uh, called, referred to the, uh, uh, you know, this, this coronavirus, this COVID-19, uh, as, um, what, what was it, the uh, Hong Kong flu, the, the Kung flu, the Kung yes. flu. Uh, yeah, and he's made it uh, very much about China. Uh, and um, uh, then we heard of course, from the administration uh, this week that uh, the, the, the China uh, deal, uh, China trade deal was over and dead, and then that had to be walked back very Tell me about what you make of all of those conversations. Well, certainly the the China hawks, as, as we've known, Navarro, key among them, uh, Lighthizer as well, although Lighthizer is still, I'd say, more of an institutionalist, uh, still w see being tough on China as important. And, and frankly, given that the economic uncertainty makes it unlikely that China will fulfill uh, its side of the trade deal, that there's got to be some way to explain away the disappointment to farmers, manufacturers, and other groups in the Trump base that were counting on this. Uh, of course, we saw the from John Bolton's book that it was absolutely vital to get the soybeans slung across the Pacific for re-election. So how do, how do they change that narrative, I think, is going to be uh, one that is harder on China. But you're going to have this, uh, again, mixed signals because there's no consistent uh, position or, or decision on how they want to proceed on China, given the complexity of this, uh, you know, needing the trade deal to work, but also wanting to blame them for this virus. Um, I can't imagine it's helping the trade negotiations, uh, though, as I've said many times before, Bob Lighthizer has been a great friend for a long time. And he and I I think he has done exceptionally well in staying focused on his mission uh, and staying out of the media and the political squabble. He just in, in, is, seems yeah, to just be focused on getting something done. Particularly with a uh, supporting cast that is not known for being uh, avoiding the limelight nor remaining focused. Um, he's done a good. He's done a good job of of, of that. Um, yep. The president has uh, is canceling H H uh, one B visas, Correct. which are qualified yes. as a qualified technical visa uh, for the United States, and it further limits immigration. What's he doing? Why? Well, part of this, I think, comes from the defeat he had at the Supreme Court on DACA and the Dreamers. And, and we have to remember, too, that was where Roberts joined with the liberal justices to keep DACA in its current form. And it wasn't about the legality of the case. Roberts was simply saying the administration had done a terrible job and not followed the law in terms of repealing it. So it was a, it was a procedural slap on the wrist, but still seen as a defeat on immigration. So to get back to that side of the, the Trump base, there, 
that's why you have that wall visit. And then, uh, of course, Stephen Miller, who's uh, the true immigration hawk of all in that administration, uh, moving on an H-1B visa, scholarly research. And it's really saying that uh, they say it's to pr protect American jobs. But really what they're doing is it's highly qualified, highly educated people to do technical jobs, to be university scientific researchers, all very important things. And if, if I were in Beijing, I would be clapping loudly uh, because that's one of the secret tools of the United States is this ability to bring the best and brightest of the world here. And, and Trump's cutting that off at a time when, think about it, no one wants to become Russian. It's impossible to become Han Chinese. And America's greatest ability is to make more Americans from all over the world. And, and they think closing that off makes us stronger. And I think it's, it's wholly misguided. Well, from an economic point of view, it's uh, wholly misguided. Uh, when you look at the economy and you look at GDP growth, there are two elements to GDP growth. I'm not making a political comment, ladies and gentlemen. Don't think that I am. Please don't. You look at two things for GDP growth. You look at productivity, uh, you grow, growth in productivity and growth in the workforce. You look at growth in the population. And uh, population in the U.S. now is growing as slowly as it's ever grown, if it's growing at all, three-tenths of one percent. Uh, it will take us three years to get to one percent population growth. Uh, so uh, we don't have more workers. We, our economy is mm -hmm. going to stall. Productivity hasn't been growing. We need immigration for the economy, legal immigration. But we need more workers in the United States. And precisely, these are highly um, paying taxes and earning. Yeah, this, these uh, immigrants, these visa holders go through a very strong, very legalistic process. They're law-abiding. Uh, they have to, and these are, again, they're, they're scientific researchers. They're top technicians. If you're thinking economically and in terms of national security, where you want leadership in technology and science and R&D, it's entirely uh, counterproductive. One thing, if you've ever taken uh, uh, Econ 101, I, 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 even the most liberal professors will tell you uh, that protectionism has got to be one of the dumbest ideas uh, ever, ever espoused uh, economically. It just mm -hmm. it will crush you. It will stop growth. Protectionism stops growth. It plays well to an uneducated base. Once you understand uh, it, how economics work, uh, and how funds and and goods travel around the world, you will you it, it is not a hard concept to get. And by the way, if, if if you think I'm being political, please go read about protectionism. Look it up, Google it. Uh, don't go to a political website. Go to an academic website and read about protectionism and why it's a stupid idea economically. It it just doesn't make sense. So Dan, uh, all right, but. Protectionism, as I said, plays well to a base. We're mm -hmm. going to keep those American jobs here. Well, no, you're not. No, you're not. Um, no. Uh, there's, there's, there are greater efficiencies around the world uh, where we can, where we can have labor come in, and that, when that labor comes into this country, legal labor, it's paying taxes, it's paying Social Security, it's creating more demand and more people going to Walmart and buying more stuff. And a lot of that stuff's made in the United States, but there's a great quality of life here, and that makes for a more robust economy. Fewer people do not make for a more robust economy. Anyway, uh, Dan, let's, mm -hmm. 
So this is a political move. Will that work for the president? I mean, as we come to November and the polls, how does he get to his uh, uh, the right number of electoral college votes? Yeah, it's, it's looking harder and harder for him. I think he still has strengths in some states like Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin even. Michigan has been hard hit by the coronavirus. It's looking trickier for him. Uh, Florida will be competitive. But now there's states in play, like I see Georgia looking increasingly in play. Arizona looking increasingly purple. Texas polling where he's nearly tied in Texas. The administration's talking, someone from the campaign was saying that things aren't that bad and then pointed to a poll where Trump was only up by four in a state like Arkansas, which is ruby red. So there's a, there's discontent and there's bad polling for the president right now. We've been burned by polling in 2016. We all remember that. Uh, and Biden needs to make sure that young people and African-Americans get out to vote. That's going to be a challenge for them, uh, mobilizing them. And it's four months between today, as much as we see the passions today, four months is a, a lifetime in politics these days. So you can't count Trump out, but it's looking particularly daunting when you see polls with Biden up above at 50%, above 50% beating Trump, Trump now in the high 30s. Hillary Clinton didn't even have those good of numbers when she was planning on not going to Wisconsin. So these these numbers look very strong for Biden right now. Uh, and that's a challenge that Trump is, is struggling to figure out because in many ways, Biden's biggest advantage right now is one, that the president's self-defeating. We talked about that last week. And two, Biden's advantage is that he's not Hillary Clinton. So he can't be painted into that box. And there's not that reflexive uh, Clinton dislike that is there among conservative-leaning independents that he was able to draw on last time. Uh, your call uh, last, I think it was last week or perhaps the week before, was that the uh, Joe Biden would win this election, that uh, the both the Senate and the House have Democratic majorities. You still yeah. feel that way? Yeah, the, the blue sweep yeah. is still looking lightly. The, the the betting markets actually have turned, if you believe in those, putting it, you know, Biden at 60 cents on the dollar compared to Trump at 40. Uh, those are all things that are starting to turn. So the, the current environment, particularly as Trump is floundering on the coronavirus, is, you know, it's not a second wave. This is actually, you know, if we were just in the, the foothills of the first wave, I guess you could say, looking at what we're seeing now in Texas and Arizona. Uh, then beyond that, the his, his tone tone-deaf approach to race uh, and focusing on a, on a vocal segment rather than a lot of the public is, is not with the president on both the virus and race right now. And Dan, uh, as we come to our end here, tell me what you're looking at over the course of the next week. What are we going to be talking about next week mm -hmm. on the forecast with you? Well, I think what we're going to see is if we get some sense of this police reform bill, and if that gets blocked or there's deadlock on that, it, it raises questions about how you're going to get through a further stimulus package in this in this dynamic where you have a, a Republican uh, Senate, a Democratic House, 
and, and a White House not clearly coming down one way or another on priorities. So we're going to look at that. I also think it's continuing to note that, you know, this, this unrest where you have uh, really rather uneducated people now tearing down statues of Ulysses S. Grant or, or Union Civil War veterans because they're just tearing down statues, uh, that's going to change some of the political uh, appearance of some of these protests. But let, let's see how those trends continue or whether some people have just simply gotten some uh, steam out of their system. I do wonder how many statues are going to survive uh, to anyone and, and who they're going to be. I mean, it's going to be a reshaping here of, of, of uh, I guess, statuary. Uh, yeah. Some of it rather beautiful. It just depends who the, who's who's been carved out of what. <laughs> well, maybe we'll see <laughs> the weather even last, last I, materials, but that might not yeah. matter. Last I checked, the Ronald McDonald on the bench by the drive-through is still standing tall. I'm sure he offended someone, and that's only a matter of time. Well, we're all terrified of uh, clowns, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That is one of those. That is one of those uh, strange fears. It's not one of mine. I've never woken up to the clown dream. Well, uh, Dan Mahaffey, thank you very much. We will be back with you again next week. Oh, quickly, Dan, we had elections yesterday. Let's not forget those. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Democrats uh, were some primaries and things. What did you make of those? Okay, interesting to see the logistics. I think people are starting to get more of the logistics of vote by mail worked out, although that's going to continue to be controversial. Uh, some good victories for the for maybe some left-leaning Democrats, but we're also seeing a trend, too, which I think will be interesting in November. Uh, results are taking weeks when you have all these mail-in ballots. So it, it's not election night. It's election week or perhaps election fortnight we have to consider. But uh, a mixed bag for both the, the far left and the establishment. But uh, there's still trends. Uh, it, I, I, if I were a longtime establishment politician, I would not be resting comfortably at all, though. My next, uh, okay, so next week, Dan, and uh, Harry uh, or Dan, please remind me. I want to talk about uh, this, this, uh, the election in November. Uh, there's already suggestion that the president's going to object to it, uh, and and he's already said that mail-in ballots are fraudulent and it's a, it's it's a big conspiracy. Um, what should we expect from those elections? How bad and ugly could it get? Will we be back in the Supreme Court next week on the forecast? Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to come back with my friend Bob Frick from Navy Federal Credit Union, the chief economist there with 8 million members. Wonderful insights. We typically get to hear from Bob what what those 8 million members are doing. Are they spending money? Are they refinancing? Are they financing? Are they taking mortgages? Are they buying homes? It is a great insight into the American consumer at a very, very critical time in our nation's history and economy. When we come back on the Farcast. Thank you for joining us on this week's Farcast. Every week, we bring you experts and insiders to give a deeper understanding of our changing world. If you would be interested in Michael Farr delivering a presentation on the economic forecast for 2021 and beyond, please contact me, Harry Jennings, at 202-530-5608, or email me at hjennings at farmiller.com. In the past, Michael has delivered presentations at such venues as the Palm Beach Chamber of Commerce, the YPO Economic Summit, and the University of Delaware Economic Forecast. We are booking now for late 2020 and early 2021 for events where Michael will share his views into the recovery from the pandemic, 
including the consequences of the stimulus and the opportunities for investors. Reserve your date now on Michael Farr's speaking schedule. And now, back to Michael and the Farcast. Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I'm Michael Farr. Thanks so much for being with us again this week. Uh, June the 24th, the last week of the second half, the first half, second quarter of 2020. A terrific first couple of segments. First, discussing markets, where we are, what's going on coming into the end of the second quarter, and will we see that selling that's being predicted by Wells Fargo and others? Dan Mahaffey was terrific on politics, his insights, what's going on with the elections. But now, to a Farcast fan favorite, one of the brightest and nicest guys we ever get to talk to, Robert Frick is the chief economist at Navy Federal Credit Union. It's the largest credit union in the country, over 8 million members. Uh, He was researcher analyst at, at the Allianz Center for Behavioral Finance. I love to talk to behavioral finance guys. People underestimate the behavioral part of finance and markets, was also at Kiplinger's uh, Penn State, Go Nittany Lions, MBA from finance and uh, undergraduate in journalism. Uh, Bob Frick, you are so great to be back on with us. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Always a lot of fun. All right, Bob. We have an economy that uh, looks awful. We have markets that look great. We have politics that look like a dog's breakfast. What's your take? (laughs) That's my favorite expression from my grandmother and my dad. <laughs> Either a dog's breakfast or it looks like the dog's had you under the porch. Um, <laughs> I mean, where do we begin? Um, you know, I'm an economist, so I'll focus on that. We are um, coming up from the bottom. I believe the recovery has started. It's certainly going to be messy. Um, what's interesting is that the markets have already figured that we've got this one in the bag and there's been a V-shaped recovery in the markets, which is curious to me because when you look at the previous two recessions, we saw the damage and we figured, man, it's going to take us a few years to get out of this. And as you know, it took, what, three or four years to get the S&P back after the great recession in the the dot-com bubble. And now we're just at the bottom. We don't even know how much damage has been done. And we have this V-shaped recovery in the market. Um, so you talked about behavior. My behavioral take on this is that we're in this vacuum of uncertainty, of economic uncertainty. And I think wishful thinking has filled the void. And, you know, I love Beckett. And one of Beckett's favorite sayings was, Nothing is more real than nothing. And we ascribe, when we know nothing, we essentially imagine what we want to be true. And I think the markets have done that. We're priced to perfection now. So you're you're suggesting that uh, in the absence of any information, we're making up our own narrative and and it's a rosy one and we're choosing to believe it and... um, would people just hope that it's right? This is this is uh, this is a market based on hopium. Yeah, well, optimism. I mean, that's the that's the technical bias is optimism bias, is in the absence of fact, 
we assume the best. And uh, we see that all the time in everything, in markets, in our own personal finances. And we don't know what's going to happen. You know, we're moving in a generally good direction. But um, the fact that the markets think that, you know, there'll be no major COVID resurgence that will get a vaccine, it seems like all, all the good things have been baked into the future already. So I'm afraid what's going to happen when not everything falls out exactly as we imagine. Is it fair to talk about a resurgence, Bob? I mean, people are talking to me about a second wave, and I can't see that the first wave is over. I agree. I agree with you completely. Can't this is a reason I like you, you know, Frick. <laughs> really, there's a great reason I like you, because you agree with me. Because I, mean, I agree with you. Well, actually, you agree with is what that means. <laughs> you agree uh, with me. I'm fine agreeing with you. Yeah, that's okay. I can do that. Well, no, I wrote a book uh, a, a couple of uh, a couple of years ago, and I don't know. It was 2011. It was published uh, called "The Arrogance Cycle." Uh, mm. I haven't sent you a copy. I'll send you a copy. It's uh, it's it's great at keeping doors open, if just right down on the floor, wedged <laughs> underneath. Uh, but 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 this book um, basically, it, you know, I wrote it. It was published in 2011. Of course, I wrote it in 2008. You have a little lag when you write books. Sure. But um, when it, it, the the whole notion is, as soon as you believe that you can't lose, you 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 you're going to lose, uh, and we see it repeat over and over again in markets. Do you still sense that that phase of psychology as a behavioral economist? I mean, are you? Do you think investors feel bulletproof? I mean, there's optimism and then there's bulletproof optimism. Where do you think we are? Oh, I think we've definitely verged over into the the bulletproof optimism. Um, you huh. know, it was it was crazy when and the market went down, and like a lot of investors who have lived through two, you know, bull bear markets crashes, I just started dollar cost averaging in. I would just every week I'd put money in the S like Ivy, you know, the S and P five hundred ETF. Yeah. yeah, and I just put it in, put it in, put it in. I had a lot in, and then all of a sudden the market coming back, and I just dollar coverage, dollar cost averaged out. That may be the simplest example of behavior in the markets and the way to profit from it, and really the only one I do because I'm not a market timer. But it's so clear that people had discounted all the bad news week after week, and that we were building this vision of a perfect market. Um, everything now needs to fall into place. And again, contrast that to, say, the Great Recession. We saw the damage, and we saw that people's yeah. personal assets had completely deflated and the markets were a mess. We knew it was going to be a slog coming back. Why don't we think it's going to be a slog coming back now? Answer me that, Michael. Oh, I, I, I think, you know, that, that somehow there is a there's this view that this is temporary and that we are seeing people who are, of course, in this reopening. Uh, there's there's an increased activity. People are starting to get back to work a little bit. And I think even though they're not I, I, there's not the real income in the economic data to support anything happening, you know, very robustly, we're going back to exactly what you said before. People are coming up with a bullish narrative saying, 
Well, you see, it is going to recover. Look at this early evidence of recovery. We have green shoots of recovery. Therefore, at some point over the next three years, we're going to have a vaccine and everything will be back to normal. Uh, and that's what we all want to believe. Economically, Bob, and I've, been, I've had this discussion on the forecast uh, and on CNBC with any number of economists you know, including Jay Bryson, uh, uh, chief economist at Wells Fargo, mm -hmm. they are calling for single-digit unemployment by the end of the year. Mechanically, mechanically, I don't see how that happens. I don't. I'm just having trouble mechanically seeing where those jobs are going to be created and how you actually employ that many people over that period. I know how you fire them, but hiring people takes a little while. Maybe I'm wrong. What's your forecast? Are we going to see the economic data improve that dramatically? Well, once again, you're a genius. And once again... <laughs> would you call my wife? <laughs> yeah, would you call my wife? Um, the, um, sure, uh, yeah, that's a deal. Yeah, let's, it's a deal. Um, yeah, we've descended into kind of this magical thinking... I look very dispassionately at where the, those jobs are going to come from, and there are many industries that are down for the eight count, right? You know, travel, yes. lodging, you know, all hospitality, restaurants. But in addition to that, just last week, and, you know, many of us, I'm not the only one who had this idea, is we thought that the unemployment insurance claims we're going to stop going down dramatically week after week because ancillary tertiary businesses were starting to lay off too because, you know, the travel industry needs accountants, needs financiers, needs suppliers. Now there's layoffs in all of those support businesses. And last mm -hmm. year we hit a real snag. Unemployment claims barely went down at all. Again, a lot of us have been predicting that. Last week it happened. Now we're really into the struggle in which um, we've kind of added back the easy jobs, and now we're really going to have to fight tooth and nail to get back other jobs. Um, you know, I'm not a pessimist, I'm not an optimist, but I'm a realist, and I see what you see in that single digit. I think the Fed might have come in under 10% by the end of the year. I can see yeah. 11, 12%. Um, I think that would be really good if we could do that, which means we'll be in the single digits next year. But I'm with you. I don't see I don't see how the cards fall together and all this rehiring happens. You know, uh, I did, I've often talked about the three psychological stages uh, of a bull or bear market. The first stage is denial. I mean, it's a little bit like the stages of death and dying because those are that's that's basically a psychological pattern. When you think about the five stages of death and dying, it's 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 five psychological steps towards accepting a dramatic and and traumatic new reality. Which uh, so markets right uh, as you go through a bull market. As, as you come off the bottom, people deny it. They'll say, oh, this is a head fake. Don't buy this. Uh, things are still awful. Uh, and then all of a sudden, they'll, you know, they'll say, well, maybe the next stage is acceptance. All right, I guess this is for real. Great. You guess this is for real. Uh, maybe I'll do a little bit of buying. And then you get to the exuberant stage where there, everything is wonderful and nothing can go down. And of course, that's when it's ready to go down. During that bull 
psychological from the acceptance to the uh, exuberance period, good news is embraced. Uh, every good, every whisper of good news is embraced by the investor who says, aha, there it is. See, there's another reason I was right. It's that confirmation bias. This right. is going to go higher. Look at that. That was a new piece of data. And, and, and bad news is rejected, right? Bad news is dismissed. And I have always, I, I'm going to go ahead, Bob, and throw, throw you under the bus with me. Uh, during those times on CNBC, during these raging bull markets, I come on and go, wait, wait, wait. This stuff is too expensive. Anything that can go up really fast can go down really fast. And I say all of those sorts of, uh, I've learned these things the hard way. And the reaction I get from uh, my dear friend, Joe Kernan and others is far. Why are you such a downer? Why do you have right. to be so negative? Don't you get it? This is a bull market. If during that bear market, I say, look, things you know, aren't that bad. You're supposed to buy low. We're seeing some good prices here. There are some encouraging signs. They're not overwhelming, but this is not all awful. People then think you're an even bigger jackass because they'll say, <laughs> oh, you're Pollyannish. Well, you right. don't get how bad this is. You're not a serious person. What is wrong with you? Don't you know we're in real trouble? Um, right. If you right. don't agree, what is it, Bob? You're the, you're the behavioralist. Tell us, what is it that makes people reject the facts in front of them in favor of the narrative they want? Well, e even to their own detriment. Yeah. Well, I think you hit on, on one of the most important things, which is confirmation bias. When you're in pain, when everything looks terrible, you reach for these green shoots. And a green shoot might just be a little blade of grass, and you hold onto that thing like grim death and expect that that's <laughs> going to propel us right into the future. Yeah. And that's what, that's what yeah. we're seeing now. And there are some real, there is some really good news that's happening right now, but they're only green shoots. It's not like there's this huge you know, forest of earnings that's growing in front of our eyes. But Robert Schiller, you know, the great Robert Schiller talks about, you know, these narratives that we get, that we talk ourselves into. And we've talked ourselves into this kind of rapid recovery narrative. And these stories are powerful. And it's up to people like you and me to say, um, stop thinking magically, stop thinking, stop having this wishful magical thinking, and just look at the facts. And the facts are pretty good. Like, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, I, I think this is, we're in a terrible situation. We were, but now we're in a pretty good situation. And there are a lot of good things happening. Autos, auto sales, just looking from, you know, our perch at Navy Federal, doing terrific. People refinancing their homes. The savings Wait a minute. Rate, okay. What do, you mean, yeah. what do you mean doing terrific on auto sales? Tell us what you're seeing. Well, uh, we, I think, are going to have about a record month in auto loans. Um, now, again, wow. that's, com that's coming from a low level, but there's a ton of used cars that were kind of stuck at auctions that are coming on the market. There's some great deals. Not only that, people are refinancing their auto loans because rates are so low. People Credit are union. refinancing auto loans? I didn't know that was a thing. I know. It's a thing. And trust me, when people wow. fall in love with a car and the dealer talks them into a 15% loan, and we can give them a 6% loan, you better believe, you know, they're refinancing those, uh, you know, like crazy these days. So, wow. um, you know, obviously people are the refinancing their mortgages, but we are now at a level of people getting mortgages to purchase homes 
which is at a pre-COVID level. So housing's looking better. It isn't fully recovered. It isn't the boom that cars are yet. People are starting to spend with their credit cards. Not as much as last year, but they're starting to kind of branch out. We're starting to see people buy more, but okay. this- So you're this, seeing, I mean, you've got economic green shoots, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. We see a lot of green shoots, but they're just shoots at this point, and they need yeah. to be nurtured. They need to be watered. I think Congress is going to have to come through with a lot more money um, as kind of a bridge loan until the economy picks up better. Things are moving in the right direction, but the market has gotten ahead of reality, as it often yeah. does. As it, as it often does, and and there will be uh, there, you know, markets go down; they go in zigzag patterns. So we'll have some down days ahead of us. I wonder if people will freak or not. They haven't freaked out so far. We'll see if that keeps going. Um, well, let me Bob, tell you uh, real quick: they freaked yeah. when the market crashed recently, and a lot of people sold at the bottom, just like two thousand and nine. And that's yeah. an unfortunate that's an unfortunate side effect of of what's just been happening. We start the forecast every week with a with an intro that includes emotion as the foe of the long-term investor. Uh, emotional decisions almost every time will be wrong. Uh, Bob, uh, the Federal Reserve has said that they're going to keep interest rates uh, low through, I mean, at zero through uh, 2022. I mean, he said, uh, uh, Jay Powell said he's not going to raise rates. Is that cor- it, it, Do you think he's doing the right thing? Is that a mistake? Are we adding too much money? Uh, when does inflation finally hit with this much cash and, and this much debt building up? I was just asked that by one of one of the, the executives at Navy Federal yesterday. And a very, and a very I, intelligent one. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, yeah. my boss. So super intelligent. Um, super but, intelligent. Yeah. Right up there with FAR. Yeah. Yeah. So I said no. And the reason why I said that was. After the Great Recession, when, you know, a lot of money was pumped in the economy, everybody was worried about inflation, you know, these inflation hawks. I actually, for a time, was the editorial director of a financial and investment newsletter company. And I had to go in and basically kill off a bunch of the letters that weren't doing very well. The inflation survival letter was the first one to go because there was no inflation, because there's not enough demand. So no matter how much money you pour into the system, we are at a um, macro demand deficit and have been for 20 years. I don't see how, no matter how much money you pump in, um, and it is kind of a ridiculous amount already, that, yeah. that, spurs, that that spurs inflation. I mean, we could get a blip in inflation. That's possible as people kind of rush back in to buy. But... There's just not enough demand. People don't make enough money um, for there to be a, a lot of demand. Um, so I don't see it. Bob, can um, you and I make a broader statement here? I mean, because may, I, I've been uh, I've been saying through this last recovery from the Great uh, Recession, if, if we'll call it the Great Recession, this is going to be the greater recession that we're in now, certainly. But the the Great Recession was that you know we we spent. Uh, trillions of dollars, uh, created trillions of dollars in debt that still generated only 2% a year in GDP growth thereabouts. Yeah. So is, do you think it's safe to say, can, can frickin' FAR come up with a, a, a uh, uh, posit that uh, uh, monetary policy cannot generate demand? I said we don't have a supply problem. 
we had a supply side solution, but it doesn't generate demand. Um, and, and, and so we didn't, we, we didn't have a supply problem. We had a demand problem. It, have we reached, uh, is that going to be one of the clear limits as we look forward or look back years to come? Uh, that's, that, that basically monetary policy can't generate demand uh, at all, and that's why you don't have inflation? That's our next book. Or that's our first book. We need to just come up with a clever title. Um, I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, we're very concerned. We're focused on our members. And our members reflect society at large. And what we see is, you know, at least half the people living paycheck to paycheck. You're not going to get inflation when people can only buy the necessities and just scrape by. You see people have supplied debt for savings because they can't save. Now, you're not going to go on a spending spree when you have a big credit card nut, right, hanging over your head. So I think that's exactly right. I think it's a demand problem. And until we get, and I don't want to get into the politics of it, but until people start making more money and until people can save and until 50 percent at least of Americans aren't living paycheck to paycheck, we're always going to have this drag, this lack of demand yep. that is yep. going to keep our GDP. Now people were thinking, why hasn't GDP gotten over 3 percent? Why is GDP this year pre-COVID going to go under 2 percent? To paraphrase, it's the demand, stupid. Um, yes. We don't have the demand. Um, how do we get more money into people's hands? I don't supply to, I don't agree with the, you know, the socialist solutions for that, but there are many other things we can do to help people get their finances straight. And then I believe all good things happen. Bob, got to go. I can't believe we're out of time. Um, it's always so great talking to you, and I always learn so much. Uh, tell me, uh, year end, where do you see markets, higher, lower, same in here? You know, I, I don't know. Nobody should leave the market right now because a year from now, things are going to look much, much brighter. Much, much brighter a year from now. Our friend Bob Frick. Chief Economist at Navy Federal Credit Union, the largest one in the country, ladies and gentlemen. A great honor to have you on the far cast, Bob. Uh, stay healthy, well, safe. Best to well, you and everybody at Navy Federal and to your family. Thank you, Michael. And you continue to be a genius. <laughs> as long as I agree with Frick, which isn't hard to do, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> That's it for another Farcast for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure always. We will be back next week with a new forecast. Some of the uh, most, uh, I guess, thought-leading uh, people in the country continue to join us on the forecast and open our eyes as we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. It's the forecast. We'll be back next week. I'm Michael Farr. Thanks for listening in on this week's Farcast. We hope you enjoy the show and will share with a friend. Special thanks to Michael's guest, Dan Mahaffey, and Robert Frick of Navy Federal Credit Union. The Farcast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. Please subscribe and don't miss a minute. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at farcast at farmmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like us to cover as we produce the weekly shows. 
We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any index, fund, manager, or strategy. And before you make any investment decision, we strongly recommend you consult with a financial professional to determine what may be best for your individual needs and your goals. And in these times of turmoil, if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help, and I'll be happy to put you in touch with one of our investment professionals for a review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Join us next week with our special guest, Jim Urio, and the Washington Post's Tom Heath. Go beyond the headlines with the Farcast, Wall Street, Washington, and the world.